deeply obsessed with dog behavior. Join us each week as we discuss case studies, explore training concepts, and interview experts in the field of behavior. My name is Kayla Fratt, and I run Journey Dog Training, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Ursa, who runs Canis Major Dog Training in Denver, Colorado. Hey, guys. And today, Ursa and I are doing uh, a, a new format, um, kind of similar to our myth-busting episode, but we're doing we're calling it Hot Takes, where we're kind of going back and forth on some controversial topics. Um, we're doing it a little bit kind of game show style where you we've got a randomizer set up. Um, one person's going to get a topic. They're going to have three minutes to go through it. And then the other person gets two minutes to add any points or counterpoints that they think the other one missed. And then we're going on to the next one. Um, so it should be fun. We'll see how many of them we've got. We'll be able to get through. We've got a bunch. <laughs> Turns out dog people have opinions. <laughs> yeah. Who knew? Right. We also have some super exciting news. You can support the podcast through Patreon for as little as $3 a month. So patrons get to submit questions, which we answer at the end of each episode. You can join that conversation over at patreon.com slash canine convos. Um, and actually today our patron questions are mixed in because we put out a call letting people know we were going to do this um, and they were able to submit some of their hot button topics of their own. <laughs> so Ursa, what is our first topic? Well, first you have to tell me, am I getting the first one or are you getting the first one? Oh, good question. <laughs> uh, why don't you go first? Oh, I'm going to go first? Okay. I was going to say we could always paper, rock, scissors for it, but okay. So our first topic is doodles. <laughs> right off doodles. the top. All right. Right off the top, doodles. So is my timer going? It is now. Okay. So at first glance, doodles may not seem like a controversial thing because they're super popular, but in the dog world, people have really strong opinions about them. You know, should people be getting them? Should we be breeding them, et cetera? Um, is it a real breed? Is it a hybrid? Um, lots of sort of disagreements about um, just sort of the nature of doodles in general. I have to say, um, I actually, even though they are not my type, I like uh, pointy, fluffy, high drive dogs like you, Kayla. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so doodles are not exactly my type. It's not what I gravitate towards. I'm actually kind of a fan of them. Um, and, you know, my sample size for the dogs that I see is obviously very anecdotal. Um, but I, I have to say, like, I think that a lot of the times I see dogs with the dogs with problems. And so um, I, I my in my experience doodles tend overall, and this is a generalization based on my experience, to be pretty even tempered. Um, I feel like I haven't seen a lot of them with severe aggression issues towards dogs or people. Um, I've seen a few with some anxiety issues, but not a ton compared to some of the other more popular breeds. And overall, I think they tend to be pretty like friendly, easygoing dogs. The first few years of life with a doodle can be really chaotic because they're like, I, I do think they're crazy high energy and they have a lot of requirements in terms of like enrichment and stimulation and, and exercise. So it's, you're not getting off easy with a doodle. Um, but I do think overall they tend to be pretty, have pretty good temperaments. Um, a lot depends as with anything on the breeder. So if you get one that's well-bred, like I have a client with a, a doodle puppy who is phenomenally well-bred and her temperament is just spectacular. Um, I've seen some that are not well-bred that it, what I find is usually that comes out more in physical uh, stuff as opposed to temperamental stuff. But um, overall, I like them. I say doodles are good as long as we're getting them from good breeders and they're getting the training and enrichment that they need at an early age just like any dog. Um, I do want to add, they're not hypoallergenic. <laughs> they do shed less than other dogs, but it is possible to be allergic to doodles because they still have skin and create dander. So, um, so yeah, that's where I land with that. And I also think the generation is important. So is it a first generation cross or is it like an F2 or whatever? And that's a whole other topic in its own. And that is not my specialty, but that makes a difference. So it looks like I am at the end of my time. Yeah. Oh, point counterpoint. <laughs> cool. I've got my two minute timer going. Um, I think I broadly agree with you. I, um, my general stance on pretty much all breeds or mixes is I'm okay with them as long as they're bred responsibly, which, you know, 
let's debate about the de definition of that. Um, right. And you're thinking hard about the homes that you're placing them in and how they're advertised. And I think where I get concerned about doodles um, is sometimes the the promises that are made about doodle puppies that, you know, somehow you manage to breed uh, a poodle with X breed and you just magically always get the best combinations of both parents. So you're going to mm -hmm. end up with a hypoallergenic couch potato. And I'm mm -hmm. so sorry about my screamy puppy. He really <laughs> needs a nap, um, but does not oh. believe me. Um, <laughs> and uh, so overall, I think that's kind of my biggest concern with doodles is that a lot of times, you know, they're like, oh, we'll, we'll mix a, a poodle and a golden retriever and you'll get the happy-go-lucky family dog from the golden and the, uh, the hypoallergenic coat, low shedding coat from the poodle. And it's totally possible to end up with that poodle kind of, nerviness um, and energy and a golden retriever's mouthiness and a golden retriever's shedding. You know, they're just as likely. <laughs> so yeah. I think that's where I tend to get concerned. Um, and I have seen a lot of doodles that are energetic to the point of almost being kind of hyperactive. I feel like I've noticed a lot of them having really, really low attention spans, yes, um, which agreed. can be really frustrating for people when coupled with high energy. Agreed. So, you know, they're they're not the breed for me, but I think the big point is a lot of the breeds that exist don't exist to fit today's society. And doodles were created in a lot of cases to fit today's society. And that is a good thing. Most people yeah. want a nice pet dog and that's what doodles are here for. So that's purpose bred. And that's the end of my time. <laughs> awesome. All right. All right. Are you ready for your topic? Yeah. Um, it sounds like my puppy might have shut up now. So I'm ready. <laughs> okay. Flexi leads. Ooh, okay. Flexi leads. Um, <laughs> overall, I think um, flexi leads are overused in tight spaces where they're suboptimal. Mm. Um, so I hate seeing flexi leads in a obedience class or in PetSmart or while navigating the farmer's market and your dog is like three stalls over from you mugging the baker. Um <laughs> I think that is what a lot of people who hate flexi leads think of when they're venting about flexi leads. I personally own a flexi lead. <laughs> um, and oh, I love it. <laughs> yeah, I use it for hiking in places where my dog legally has to be on leash and I don't want to be managing a long line for some reason. So often when my hands are cold I, and I don't want to be managing that long line or if it's really muddy or really wet, even with my biothane long lines, then my hands get wet and I, it, you know, I just, they are really convenient. I've also um, enjoyed using them for some scent work because you can actually blindfold the handler and have the dog work on leash without the handler's influence because the dog, uh, the handler doesn't have to manage a long line. Hmm. Um, the other place where I've personally used them and personally don't mind them is on kind of like, you know, like the, the big public like walking paths where they're not all that crowded. Um, it's not a place that's legal or safe to be off leash necessarily, but your dog um, can wander a little bit more and get more of that kind of decompression like feeling, especially for people who are not skilled yet with um, a long line. Right. And that is my piece. And I am going to try to take care of my puppy. Okay. Uh, all right. So I, I think you made some really good points. And um, especially like the nose work is something that I ha hadn't really occurred to me in terms of how a flexi lead could be helpful with that. Generally I'm against. And the reason is I feel that in a lot of cases, especially with clients who have a concern about leash pulling, um, that they can teach the dog to pull because the dog feels tension, but the harder they pull, the more leash they get. And so I do think that if you have a dog that you're in training with to teach them to walk nicely on a leash, they can really work against you, um, which we don't want. We don't want to undo what we've done. And then I would also say, um, I really do think they can be a safety hazard. I have seen some really, I've seen one exceptionally tragic case of a dog um, on a flexi lead where the owner dropped it and it skittered after the dog and the dog freaked out and ran into traffic and got hit by a car. Um, Ugh, I have God. also seen, I know, I know. I've also seen some, just some really nasty, like rope burns and tripping and things like that. Um, from flexi leads. I don't love that you can't manage it with both hands. Like there's no way to grab even those, uh, the flat ones are really hard on the hands. And so there's mm -hmm. no way to hold the leash at a fixed point at the end and then manage it with your second hand, especially if you have the cable ones 
overall, I don't love them. Like I, I, you know, as with almost everything, I think they can have a place in some, in some situations, but overall I'm, I'm generally against for those reasons. So for walking, I do think your best point is about people who use them when they're not appropriate. Yeah. Like at the farmer's market or at, like the other day I was buying dog food and a dog came around the corner without its owner. And the owner was 30 feet away because they had an unlocked flexi lead. So fortunately the dog was yeah. really friendly, but. <laughs> yeah. I had a, uh, yesterday in puppy kindergarten, we had um a, a, a like a three-year-old girl holding the end of a flexi lead oh, of a puppy. God. And I was just like, okay, honey, oh, you don't God. know how to lock this. Um, mm. You know, and like, we're nope. safe, we're in puppy class, but your puppy is getting tangled with everyone else. This is yeah, not no kidding. Oof. So yeah, right. generally again. <laughs> so our next topic I think is mine and it is citronella collars. All so, right. Have fun. Start up my timer, right? Citronella collars. Okay. So um, generally speaking, I don't love them. Um, they are a positive punishment based method of training. So a citronella collar for anyone who's not familiar with it is a collar that you put on your dog. And it's got a little spray can at the front and the, the collar is activated by the dog barking. And when the dog barks, it's got the little prongs that sense the movement and it spritzes a puff of citronella in the dog's face. And it's intended to be aversive, meaning it's intended to be unpleasant to the dog so that when they connect it with their barking, they bark less. So the barking is effectively punished. Um, I will say uh, in over the, the length of my career, I have had, and this was more early on, one or two clients that I could not talk out of using a bark collar that had success, that lived in an apartment, that uh, the dog was barking and they were being, you know, at the, at the time, like at risk of being kicked out or being cited or whatever, that they were able to use the collar for a short period of time and eliminate the barking and then not use it again. And I think that is the best case ideal scenario. If it's, if you're at a point where you're using one to not have to use it forever as with anything. Um, But I would so much rather see us treat the cause of the barking. So is the dog anxious? Do they have separation anxiety? Are they bored? Are they reacting to noise? What is the reason for the barking? Because just punishing the bark isn't treating why the dog is barking and why they feel the need to bark. The other thing I don't love is that it can punish other dogs because the smell doesn't just go into the one dog's nose. It creates this cloud that's going to be aversive for any other dogs that are around. So you might be inadvertently punishing your other dogs for who knows what, whatever they're doing at the time they get sprayed, potentially sprayed in the face. Um, it's also not very discreet. And I mean, discreet with an ETE at the end, meaning it's not, it doesn't have a, it has a distinct start, but it doesn't have a distinct finish. So it can linger in the air. And what that means is whatever your dog is doing after they bark, which is likely silence might also still be being punished by the, the citronella fragrance hanging around. So, you know, that's not very clear to the dog when the punishment starts and when it stops. Um, and then finally, I would say that I have uh, experienced dogs who will who understand what's happening and they bark out the canister until it's empty um, and they just take it. Because, I mean, as with any aversive, it depends on the dog if they find it aversive or not. So if they're willing to bark through that spray until it's empty and then they have free reign to just bark without being sprayed in the face, that's not a great solution. And then if you have to continue using it forever, it's also not affecting the behavior long term. So. That's my that's my spiel on citronella colors. So your turn. And that is time. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think the only big point that I I was going to make that you ended up making is that it's not necessarily it's not discreet. Um, it doesn't stop when the dog stops. So as we can hear with my crying puppy in the background, if I were to be using one right now, and then if and when he quiets down he would still be getting punished and my dog Barley would be getting punished. So mm-hmm. overall, I'm a, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a fan. Yeah, me either. I don't know if I would choose, if I had to choose a bark collar for some reason, I don't know whether I would go with citronella or vibration. Yeah. So far I haven't needed to. I have heard um, the argument from one, um, one person um, that kind of makes sense to me that they like using citronella collars for interrupting predatory behaviors because it's more 
eco or ethologically valid um, hmm. because that's kind of like getting sprayed by a skunk or something like hmm. that. And it does kind of linger. And that was their entire reasoning for that. Huh. I'm not 100% sure if I buy it, but it's an interesting point. Um, it is, yeah. I, I'm interested in how they may or may not work outdoors anyway with airflow. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and mute myself and let you keep talking because my puppy is still crying. <laughs> that's okay. Um, yeah, no, that is a really interesting point. And that's something that uh, I hadn't heard before either. But um, yeah, you know, again, with any aversive, I think it, uh, citronella colors are considered by a lot of people to be more humane um, punishment because, you know, we we think in very sort of black and white terms and, and we like to categorize and create hierarchies and go, Oh, well, citronella is better than this, but worse than this. But honestly, as with everything, we have to listen to what the dog is telling us. So a scent aversive could be extremely unpleasant for one dog, maybe worse than an e-collar or whatever. And it might be no big deal for another dog. So um, it's important to keep that in mind. So, are you ready for our next? <laughs> ready enough. I'll just try to talk over the puppy. That's fine. I mean, like I said, this is, you know, this is a dog podcast, so. <laughs> yep, and this is this is puppy raising. <laughs> yeah. You got the good one, and it goes along with a question from one of our um our Patreon subscribers. Uh the topic, the hot topic is e-collars or shock collars. Okay. I've got my timer going. So e-collar shock collars, generally, no, generally against. Um, I have not ever recommended or condoned their use for a client yet. Um, I have personally used one um, in my work as a conservation detection dog handler. Um, and I think that is one of the specific cases in which I am comfortable with the use of shock collars ish you know comfortable ish um mm -hmm. and that is where your dog has to be off leash for some reason um and it has to be in a high risk area and you need some sort of extra backup um that is one of the few situations in which i feel comfortable enough that like that is the one place i have personally used one um I didn't like using it. I didn't feel like it was getting me exactly what I needed. I don't feel like it provides as much safety as is advertised. Um, they're often kind of explained as a seatbelt. Um, mm -hmm. But the, the reality is they're not a seatbelt. They don't mm -hmm. physically stop your dog um, from doing anything. I had an experience where I was working a Malinois who's rather high prey drive in a prairie dog town. Um, I had to work him basically with my finger on the, the button of the collar. Um, and I didn't use it very often because his recall had, was very good. We did a ton of practice with him. But his job was going around and sniffing each of these prairie dog burrows. And that is, you know, that's what he's supposed to be doing. And one of the burrows, he snuck his, he stuck his nose in and he came out and there was something in his mouth. Mm. And I was fumbling <laughs> for the e-collar button to shock him because, you know, my first thought is like, oh my God, he's got something in his mouth. It turned out, um, spoiler alert, it was just a piece of fabric. But what really knocked me over the head there was even as I'm, I am a professional trainer, I am working this dog, I am highly prepared, I have the shot collar ready to go. If that had been a black-footed ferret, it still would have been too late. Yeah. Um, and that really freaked me out as far as our level of reliance on them. I would personally argue that those dogs should have been muzzled instead of wearing, um, or maybe as well as, you know, if that, because the other thing that I found is, you had to have, um, if you've got the collar even like clipped to your backpack the way that we did, you have to have it turned all the way down because otherwise you will accidentally shock your dog as you're moving around. And I did that once. I left the shock collar turned on. I zapped the dog for no reason. Um, mm -hmm. He yelped. It was awful. I felt terrible. And then, you know, 30 minutes later when he did get something in his mouth that I wanted to shock him for, I had to fumble to turn it up and like I was panicking and like, you know, I didn't want to accidentally crank it all the way up to 100 when like 33 is about what works really well for that dog. Um, they also all vary, which is super stressful if you're switching back and forth between them. Mm -hmm. Even as someone who has personally used them and is not going to argue with you about using them in that specific situation, I did not find that they provided me nearly enough comfort. So that is mm -hmm. my piece. Two minutes. All right. Um, so I think I, I definitely, as you know, and I think as our listeners know, I am a 
primarily a positive reinforcement-based trainer. I follow the humane hierarchy, which is an, a, sort of an ethical roadmap for what methods to use and when. And I, um, I agree. I think for extremely specialized situations um, with extremely well-trained handlers and extremely well-trained dogs, I, I think you put it really well. I don't know that I could argue that. Um, but I think for the average pet or even working dog, um, of any breed and with any behavior issue, um, I personally find it unconscionable to use shock colors, especially as a first resort. Um, and I think a lot of, uh, trainers who rely on them jump to them immediately. And I find that to be really unnecessary. And, and, um, I, I, you know, there are a lot of arguments about, well, dogs don't mind them or they don't hurt or they're, it's just a tap or whatever. And I think that people will like to use a lot of euphemisms, but at the end of the day, if something is punishing behavior, if it's stopping behavior, it's doing it because it is unpleasant or painful for the dog. Like that's how that mechanism works. That's how punishment works. So, you know, you can tell yourself all day long, well, the dog doesn't mind it, but if they didn't mind it, they would continue this behavior. So, you know, I think that to jump immediately to using positive punishment, especially at that level, is just inappropriate um, when you haven't looked at any of the other lower level, less invasive things that you could be doing to uh, help either uh, train the dog or, or resolve a behavior issue. So um, I have personally known trainers and I, I'm familiar with how they work. I've never used one on my dogs or, or coached a client to do so. And I can't see... Uh, a scenario in which I would, honestly, um, I think that I, I just don't work in a, like, like you did in a super specialized high risk field. Like I'm working with pet dogs where I don't feel there's an excuse to go that far generally. So. Yeah. I think, you know, the, the I, I think I got a little bit far down that like specific working dog rabbit hole. Um, yeah. And, and I will say, you know, going forward with my own conservation detection dog work, I don't plan on using one. Um, and I, I, again, I didn't find it nearly as helpful as was expected um, and advertised, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> so Caroline from Patreon asked specifically about e-colors for off-leash reliability. Yeah. I, I don't know if we actually addressed her question specifically. Do That's you what I wanted to kind that? of circle back to. And the, yeah. the point that I was planning on making is just, you know, if you feel like you need one, your dog probably shouldn't be off leash. A hundred percent agree. <laughs> because they're not a hundred percent reliable. People like to paint them as being, like you said, this seatbelt, but they're not. Um, a dog can blow off a shock and not go back, not come back to you. There is absolutely no reason that a shock collar would cause your dog to come back to you. If a recall cue isn't causing your dog to come back to you because if you've trained the shock as a cue for recall, then why <laughs> wouldn't your recall cue work? Right. Um, <laughs> and I could see, you know, some amount of an interrupter where it blows the dog's mind enough that it gets them to recall. But again, if you don't trust your dog that much and you're working in an area where that like prey drive or whatever is likely to be an issue, then your dog should probably be on a long line. Yeah. Yeah. I, I will say, you know, in Montana, we have a pretty heavy shot collar culture here mm -hmm. and I am at the point generally where when I see a dog off leash with an e-collar or shot collar on, I am getting pretty good at just kind of taking the high road and being like, you know what? The dog's getting out. That is good. Yeah. It because I think if if the difference is your dog wears a shot collar that rarely gets used or never gets used or you leave your dog behind, generally I'm going to fall on the side of I'd rather have you take your dog out. But if it if you're using it for beha basic behavior, basic training issues or behavior problems or really anything other than pretty high level off leash obedience, I just do not I, I like it ethically it just doesn't work for me. Um, and we're already going over on this one. <laughs> so you can say one more thing and then we need to go. <laughs> That's okay. I want to make sure that question got answered. I agree. And I, I would say, I, I also think that um, it's an it's a super advanced tool that has a lot of nuance and a lot of room for error. And I'm not comfortable with the average pet owner 
buying one at the store and slapping it on their dog. I'm just not. And to be honest, I have known and worked with a lot of trainers who considered themselves to be specialists with e-collars who lacked an understanding of operant conditioning, who lacked an understanding of even how to teach things using positive reinforcement to begin with. Um, And that doesn't give me faith in the ability of a lot of trainers who are quick to use an e-collar to even do it properly, even though they're the ones to say like, well, if you do it properly, then blah, blah, blah. I have to say like, I'm not sure that I can think of other than the situation that you described. I can't think of a trainer who I have had a discussion with where I went, oh yeah, if you're going to do it, that's the way to do it. I've had a lot of discussions where I'm like, oh my gosh, I feel like you're missing a lot of fundamentals here. So um, I, I just feel like their their widespread use a lot of the time is is already just really sketchy, even in people who consider themselves to be experts with them. So I, like, I would rather, if somebody's going to use them, I'd rather see somebody who's like, this is my absolute last resort. We've done everything else. The dog is highly trained. This is just this one fail safe. We need to teach the dog the environment, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, I would rather see that than like, oh yeah, this is the first time I'm working this dog on a recall and we're going to use the shock collar. Like, I don't feel that's fair or okay. So, um, so yeah. And my big thing is nothing is a hundred percent. Well, and again, even though it's nutrition, which we, I use them. Yeah. I yeah, right? didn't feel like it got the results that I wanted and I don't, totally feel like it was I don't feel like it actually helped that much right um you know there there were yeah I I I don't know I just I think there are other actually other ways still to go about it with the human hierarchy and in retrospect I'm not comfortable with the training scenario in which I use them um even though at the time I felt like I did kind of go through the human hierarchy I think I think there were more things I could have done instead and part of it was that I had bosses looking at me and expecting me to do it one way and you know Right, that that right. was part of it, you know. I'm like taking yeah, part in the no. Stanford prison trial experiment, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah. I understand. So, all right, let's move on. All right. So our next topic is this one mine? I forget. Yes. <laughs> okay. Our next topic is wolf hybrids. <laughs> so uh, this is kind of a fun one. So um I have to preface this by saying I love all dogs that exist, like all dogs that are here deserve to be here and deserve humane treatment. Um, That being said, I do not understand why someone would take an animal that we purposefully bred over thousands of years to be biddable and have, um, you know, a temperament that is uh, conducive to working and living around humans and um, being trainable and et cetera, and go, you know what? I need a little more unpredictability in this. (laughs) let's breed it with a wild animal. Um, I don't think they make good pets. I just don't. Uh, And I also think that, um, you know, the people who are looking for that unpredictability and whatever else it is, uh, in my experience, wolf hybrid owners tend to be punishment heavy, tend to be dominance theory heavy. And that's a generalization. I know that is not the case with everyone. Um, But I just think the culture of, of, you know, wolf hybrid ownership um, has not come around to modern dog training uh, methods. And and overall, I just, they're unpredictable. Um, You know, they're going to behave in a lot of ways like a wild animal. And I don't feel that wild animals make good pets and I don't think we should be keeping them as pets. So, Um, and I say that I had at one point had a a pretty, um, you know, uh, a relationship with uh, Peggy Klinghammer from the Wolf Park in um, Battleground, Indiana. I, you know, did seminars there and and was, you know, friendly with them for a while. And um, they were more of a sanctuary and research center. They weren't promoting wolf hybrid ownership. But I'm really familiar with wolves and with wolf hybrids um, in general. And, and I think that familiarity as well as, you know, knowing what I know about behavior just leads me to like, obviously the ones that already are here need a home, but I don't feel like we should be making more of them. Um, we just don't need more animals that are supposed to be pets that don't have the traits that we want in pets. Um, you know, so, um, and I know I have some time left, but that's kind of like what I have to say about it. So I'm going to let you jump to your counterpoint if you have one. (laughs) Sure. Um, 
yeah, I, I mean, I think broadly, I agree. Like, we've been breed- breeding dogs for thousands of years to not be wolves and to suit our lifestyle better. Right. So <laughs> why would you undo that? I, I, I just don't, I don't understand. Right. I also, uh, most of the time when I talk to people who say like, oh yeah, man, I think I want a wolf hybrid or like they have one, it <laughs> generally seems like a status symbol sort of thing. Like it, yes. again, I know that's a broad generality, but like, I think pretty much everyone I've talked to has just been like, yeah, wouldn't it be so freaking cool to have like a wolf that like went hiking with me or whatever. Yeah. And I think most people are also grossly underprepared for their oh, needs. Yeah. And the behavior challenges that are going to be suspicious. Sus- like specific to them they're likely to be far less affiliative than your normal dog far less affiliative than your normal akita um mm-hmm. they're going to be bigger they're going to want to dig they're going to want to roam harder to socialize because that window harder to earlier. socialize yeah the amount of exercise they need is just off the charts and i i know i mean i get concerned i've i know there are a couple of relatively popular wolf hybrid um dogs on instagram <laughs> that oh, you know, yeah. a lot of times they're beautiful and those people you know as far as i can tell from instagram are meeting their needs and the thing is also genetics are unpredictable you could totally get a dog that looks like a wolf but has a golden retriever brain totally possible that doesn't mean you should make more of them right because most of them are not <laughs> going to so I, yeah. I, I, I i think that's most of it like i just i you know if you if there's one in the shelter or you uh, adopt or purchase what you think is a husky that turns out to have some wolf in it or something like that doesn't mean you have to get rid of it or euthanize it or anything no. but like for the love of god don't make more <laughs> yes exactly yeah exactly i agree oh and if i can use my my spare 30 seconds sure i wanted to mention if anyone is interested in um sort of exploring the differences between wild animals and dogs, the Belayev uh, studies. So it's the Russian studies where they selected foxes over generations for, um, for domesticated traits. So, uh, you know, less of a flight response and more affiliative and et cetera, et cetera. And it kind of talks about, it talks about the progression from a wild animal to a domesticated animal and how we've selected for those traits. It's fascinating. And it's something I think, you know, every trainer should definitely familiarize themselves with but it's also really interesting for pet owners as well. But it's like, we did this process for a reason. Why are we going backwards in it? So agree. Cool. All right. Um, so your turn. You ready? Mm-hmm. Sure. Our next hot topic. And this is kind of a geeky one. It's it's a little more of a hot topic among trainers. So if you're a pet owner and you're listening, um, this one might not be as familiar to you, but it's no reward markers. Ooh. <laughs> all right uh yeah i was worried it might be this one <laughs> yeah oh really <laughs> uh yeah i honestly i i'm not 100 percent sure if i like we'll see we'll, we'll just see where this goes um okay. <laughs> if i get them i mean i do but i don't um i think i personally unintentionally have trained no reward markers with my mm-hmm. dogs i think um you know it, and, and so a no reward marker is kind of like you know if your dog does something you don't like you say oops or uh-uh or whatever and it is uh, a warning to your, well, that's more of an interrupter, um, but it, it's a, it's letting your dog know that reinforcement is not coming, that they've quote unquote made the wrong choice. I do not use one in training or shaping or capturing where, you know, my dog is doing something that, you know, I'm trying to shape him to step into a box and he steps away from the box. I don't use a no reward marker in that situation. I just kind of wait. Mm-hmm. Um I have used something a lot, you know, I use some sort of like, oh, no, not, not, that's not right sort of cue with my dog. Um, you know, again, it's more of like an uh-uh, which is kind of, it's more of a ver- verbal punisher mm-hmm. um, for my dog, um, which is similar, I suppose. Um, and I've used one in scent work as well, where I'll, you know, Barley will alert to something random that I know is not the scent that I've placed. Um, and, you know, Sure, there could potentially be odor there, but he's nowhere near close enough that he had sourced it appropriately. Anyway, I will, you know, I will say like, no, not here, or you know, requeue him to search or something, which again could all be construed as no reward markers. Mm-hmm. I have heard arguments that some dogs that are really, really bred to want to work, no reward work markers can be really useful because it gives that dog extra information and especially dogs that find shaping really stressful or frustrating and mm-hmm. you know they, they just kind of like they get frantic if they are not getting any feedback and you know because your option is 
when shaping, you either don't give any feedback until they do something right, or you give, you know, hotter, colder sort of cues. And I think that is actually a really good argument for no reward markers. Again, I haven't found the need to use them in shaping sessions because if I'm setting up my session where my dog keeps making the wrong choice in a shaping session, I've set up my training session wrong. I don't feel like I need to introduce a no reward marker. Again, I'm not concerned about them as like a welfare thing. Right. Um, if that's something that works for you and your dog in training. Um, so I think that's about all I have to say on them. So, okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I generally agree. I, I, um, I tend with my own dogs to um, sort of use them um, unconsciously, like I'll oops um, sometimes. And I think with really highly trained dogs, they can be helpful, like you said, to just give the dog some extra information and sometimes prevent frustration. So if we're setting up a training session, as you know, many positive reinforcement based trainers do, where we're capturing or shaping and we're, we're putting the onus on the dog to offer behavior that we will then select the ones that we like and reinforce those. It can be really frustrating for the dog to get no feedback. If the dog is a savvy learner, it can be extremely frustrating for them to get no feedback. And I think in those cases, it can be helpful. I know Ken Ramirez has some, um, I think he has some data on, um, the use of no reward markers. Uh, but um, you know, I, I don't know that we have strong enough data to suggest that it's like super helpful in training, especially for a green handler and a green dog. I would say that's the case where I wouldn't probably want to see one being used. Um, just because, you know, the timing has to be really good. There's some nuance about when to use a marker versus when to take, you know, lower criteria for a behavior that you're looking at. Um, I, I wouldn't want an owner who's just starting out with training and a green dog to have to grapple with those issues because that really muddies the waters. I will say that I do, if I'm going to use um, negative punishment with a client, like for example, Oh, if your dog nips you, you're going to um, leave the room. I will try to have them mark for punishment. So oops. Oh, the oops means you earned yourself a timeout. And so I feel like that helps the dog connect their behavior with their consequence, just like a marker helps, like a positive reinforcement marker helps them understand what behavior earned them reinforcement. But a little bit different than you're not earning reinforcement. It's, oh, you actually are earning a consequence of some sort and not nothing. Totally. I think actually that that's probably actually how I teach easy to my dog, mm. where if he's about to hit the end of the leash, I will say easy. Mm-hmm. And then if he hits the end of the leash, I stop moving. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 a warning of punishment, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Which again is like it's a little different than a no reward marker. I think we we've talked about a couple other things that are like related, um, but you know I think that's well. And I think I use the I try to use the punishment marker to mean oh that behavior actually did earn you punishment. Not so much it's pending, but more like oh man sucks, but I'm going to have to leave the room for 30 seconds now because you bit me too hard or whatever, you know? So totally. maybe a, a, a little bit different. But... Yeah. It's slightly different, I guess. Cause yeah, my easy is more like pay attention. Hey, if you keep calling. Yeah. Or if you, you know, if you hit the end of the leash hard, I'm going to stop. Yeah. There's some nuance there for sure. That would be interesting to talk more about. Yeah. And like, uh-huh. is it actually working? Not really. Cause I'm still freaking using it. So <laughs> right. but it makes me feel better and it doesn't hurt my dog. So like, I guess, sure. <laughs> yeah. Hilarious. Um, okay. So my turn yep. and I have pulled adoption requirements. <laughs> Ooh, yay. This is a good one. So what we mean by adoption requirements, the topic is um, when shelters or rescues require uh, adopters to um, submit to screening or kind of jump through hoops or or prove that they are fit to adopt dogs in some way. And most commonly, it's either like background checks or a letter from a landlord, or we want to come out to see your house and see if it meets our standards or those sorts of things. So um, I have uh, sheltering experience. I was at the Kentucky Humane Society as a behavior manager for several years, as well as the Dumb Friends League, uh, the behavior manager there for several years, and then have volunteered and worked with a variety of other um, smaller shelters. And so I have a lot of experience with adopters. And I am by and large against really stringent requirements for rescues and shelters. And the reason is... um, 
I think when we're talking about finding a dog a home versus letting them sit in a kennel at a shelter, that good enough is good enough. I think that people who don't have yards are going to take their dogs for a walk. Um, I think that generally most people are cognizant enough not to sneak a dog into their house without their landlord knowing because they know what the consequences of that are. And I mean, I know everyone who's listening is going to have a story where they're like, but I know what time that this happened. Yes, I know a time that it happened too. But like I worked in a a shelter that passed, you know, we passed through 25,000 animals a year and our returns were extremely low for those reasons. I think it's far more likely that an animal is going to be returned for a behavior issue. And so shelters should take shelters and rescues should take the energy that they're spending, like making sure somebody's fence is tall enough and put it into providing post-adoption behavior support. That is much more likely to result in a return than, you know, their yard's not big enough or they don't, they work, you know, too many hours a day or blah, 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 whatever. Um, I also think generally speaking, again, generally there are exceptions People who are going out of their way to go to a shelter or a rescue to adopt are not are not making big lies. They're not, you know, they're not weaving big stories to get a dog. Like they just want a dog. And, you know, if we make it too difficult to adopt a dog from a shelter or rescue, they're gonna go to a breeder or pet store. Like a great example, um, I have a family member who is like the ideal pet owner, like huge backyard, uh, disposable income to treat health and behavior issues, whatever. And she applied for a a dog from a rescue and they came out and looked at her house and they were like, well, good luck on your application. And I'm like, if they don't give you a dog, who are they going to give a dog to? (laughs) Like, And Uh like husband husband works from home, like they have weekends off, et cetera. And that's ridiculous. Like that's ridiculous. Like give somebody a dog. (laughs) So generally speaking, I would rather see a dog in a good enough home. It doesn't have to be perfect because people are just doing their best. So Uh, thoughts, your turn. Totally. So I also wanted to mention this is from our patron, um, Caroline. So it's a hmm. patron submitted question, as was yes, our off-leash e-collar question. Mm-hmm. Um, I broadly agree. I think um, I think a lot of these issues can end up uh, overly punishing poor people um, yes. and can also be some kind of racist gatekeeping and can yes. also be kind of ageist. Yes. And I think it's really important to just say all of that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've been turned down for dogs. Um, and if you and I, you know, when I got barley, I know I've said this before on the podcast, but I was less than a year out of college, I rented, I worked four 10 hour days a week, and I had a 45 minute commute each way, I could not afford a dog walker, blah, 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 blah. Because I worked at the shelter, and it was an open admission shelter, I got to take barley home anyway. And I really hope that all of our listeners can agree that it was the right choice for Barley to get to go home with me. <laughs> yes, uh, it totally if, was. <laughs> if you don't think that, then I don't know why you're listening. <laughs> there is literally no better home in the universe for that dog. Like, <laughs> Yeah. And, and I just, you know, to turn down someone because, you know, so again, let's say, you know, someone's looking at a three-year-old Border Collie, a.k.a. Barley, um, and to turn me down because I didn't have a fence, but to not ask oh, you know, do you run? Like, mm-hmm. you know, he didn't need a fenced backyard. He needed to go you for run, a run marathons. <laughs> what was he going to do in a fenced backyard? Exactly. You know um, what he was going to do? Pace a hole in your grass. <laughs> bark at squirrels. Like, that's bark not great squirrels. either. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Pace of pace holes, whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, you know, and I think Trish McMillan has said this really, really well. And she says something along the lines of she counsels and coaches people to, you know, try to look for a reason to say yes, try to figure out a way to make it work, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're looking at a college student who who rents and, you know, works a bunch, but they want to bring home a young border collie anyway. Great. You know, what's the plan? Like, how are we going to make that happen? Help them understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there are cases where I think it's important to get a dog into a more specific home. And I think that there is a place for specific rescues that take on dogs like that, or for, you know, an admission shelter that occasionally has a dog, or they're just like, this particular dog needs mm-hmm. a more particular home. I think that yes. there should be some nuance there. And they're, you know, yes. absolutely reasonable um, to, you know, say, you know, for this dog, this dog does need to go to an only dog home or. Yeah. Or no kids or whatever. Yeah. I think Behavior needs are are a little bit different than just a blanket, like no apartments, Mm -hmm. you know, or whatever. One other thing that Caroline had mentioned in the question was, um, you know, not just like fences or 
whatever, but also sterilization requirements. So I think mm. we can kind of pull that out for an extra little bit of time. Yeah, <laughs> of yeah. course, we can't actually keep ourselves to five minutes per, per topic. Of course not. Um, I don't think I know of any shelters that don't have sterilization requirements. So it's not necessarily mm -hmm. one I've thought about a ton, but I, I know a couple people who have gotten dogs or cats, uh, dogs mostly, through back doors at shelters, you know, where right. um, an animal was transferred to the trainer instead of to the shelter so that the trainer could keep the dog intact. I don't know. You know, I think... I think I'm still, and I know, you know, if we've got European listeners, keeping your dog intact is much, much more common over there. Um, but mm -hmm. in the U.S., it's really, really uncommon mm -hmm. um, unless you're kind of a dog enthusiast, a dog fancier. I understand why shelters have sterilization requirements. I do. You know, that is their goal is to try to reduce pet homelessness and reducing the number of pets or the number of unwanted or accidental litters is a huge component of that. Mm -hmm. However, <laughs> I. I pretty strongly agree with, again, I think this was Trish McMillan on the Functional Dog Breeding Podcast, um, yes. where did good dogs come from, where she talked about, you know, like, God, man, you know, like, if you've got two really nice dogs in a shelter, it is, sometimes, you know, we have, we do have a, a shortage of really nice pet dogs, pet dogs. in this country, um, because most breeders are breeding for sport or show, which are not pet. Um I think eventually it's going to have to be a question that our country and our shelters have to grapple with more. Um, and I think it's good to uh, to think about now. And I highly recommend, rather than listening to Ursa and I blather about it unpreparedly, listen to <laughs> the Functional Breeding Podcast. I will link to it in the show notes, um, that specific episode, because it's just, it's absolutely fabulous on the topic. Um, and I think ultimately it is something we're going to have to grapple with. But generally, a lot of the dogs I know from working in a shelter, God, I want them sterilized. I don't want them going out in the world and <laughs> making babies. Some of them, you know, it'd be nice. And then, you know, then there's the health stuff, which I can't even talk about because I'm not a vet. Um, right. Yeah. But. I generally agree I, I with pretty much everything you said. I, I understand why shelters need, shelters and rescues need to do it. And I think it points to just a deeper issue in our country of responsible pet ownership overall um, mm -hmm. that needs to be addressed and we need more resources for it. And, and you know, I, I also think that, you know, if we have dogs that are really well suited to be pets, those are the ones we want to be making more of. But I don't know that those decisions should be made haphazardly by people who are just adopting mm -hmm. pets randomly, you know? Um, yeah. And so um, it, it's it's tricky. I, I will say, like, Nico, when I adopted him, it was a 10-month-old puppy. He was intact. And there have been many, many times where I have regretted having him neutered because he is absolutely the, I mean, the epitome of what I consider a perfect companion dog. Like mm -hmm. he yeah, loves everyone. And oh nice my dog. God, he's so good. And like cute to boot, you know, but like his oh, personality yeah. is easygoing. He loves everybody. He's head over heels in love with every person he meets. He's friendly with dogs, but he has boundaries that he enforces in an appropriate way. I've had him with chickens, goats, horses, um, cats. I mean, you, farm animals, you name it. Like his temperament is ideal. Like mm -hmm. I would love to have more dogs in the world like him. And so that's one of those times where I'm like, I see the argument for that. I see the argument mm -hmm. for like a dog with great temperament. He's about to turn 14. He's had no major health problems. Um, I feel like he would be the ideal candidate for something like that. But yeah, it's also hard to know without knowing the dog's background at 10 months old. I didn't know any of that. So totally, you know? Yeah. And you know, the shelters don't necessarily know who they're sending them home with. So exactly. Yeah. You know, cause they could have sent him home with someone who was just going to let him go around and knock up every, every gold dog on the block, um, which wouldn't necessarily have been helpful. <laughs> yeah. Until we have a better handle on overpopulation and just responsible pet ownership in general, like sterilization in shelters is not a hill that I'm willing to die on. Like uh, being against it mm -hmm. is not a hill I'm willing to die on because I think we have bigger, more pressing issues to resolve first. Yeah. I think that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not. It, it's not the, the the thing I'm most worried about in in dog yeah. owning culture right now. In, dog, um, in the dog world, yeah, exactly. 
Cool. Well, so we did have a couple of other Patreon questions. I think we're going to wrap up our yeah. hot topic portion and we're going to do a part two because we have way more hot topics. Um, <laughs> <laughs> probably. And so if you have some hot topics that you want us to throw in yeah. there, be sure to hit up our Patreon. So um, can I just segue right into Caroline's other question about my dogs? <laughs> yeah. Cause Since we're already talking about them. About them. So Caroline said that she would love to know more about my Ursa's dogs um, because uh, she doesn't think she knows anything about them, which I was like, I feel like I've talked about them before, but maybe not enough. So um, never enough. Well, and Caroline is one of my clients and follows me on Instagram and stuff. So there's a reason that she knows my dogs quite well. That's outside the podcast. Well, Barley's social media presence is way more savvy than my dog's social media presence. (laughs) He's more savvy than I am. Seriously, he is good. Can we hire him to do our social media for Canis Major? Yeah, yeah, we just pay him a ton of balls. Oh, perfect. I have, yeah, definitely. Sign me up. Um, so I currently have two dogs, um, Nico and Zip. Um, Nico is the one I was talking about a minute ago. He is the absolute most perfect dog I've ever met in my life. And he is a Husky Malamute Chow mix, and he has to worship them. So... All his life, I adopted him when I worked at the Kentucky Humane Society. He was turned in at 10 months old. And um, all my life, I thought he was a husky corgi mix. But uh, several years back, I sprang for a DNA test. And it turns out there was no corgi that he just has chondrodysplasia, which is short, stubby little legs. And Malamutes can carry it. Yeah. But he's phenomenal. Um, He's just my, my best buddy. And like I said, loves everything and everyone and is easygoing and... Um, you know, just, I couldn't ask for a better dog. And I, I don't feel like I should get any of the credit for that, to be honest. I feel like whoever had him before me did a fantastic job of socializing him because <laughs> by the time he got to me, that window was shut. So, um, yeah, he's, he's just terrific. And he turns 14 this February. He's still super spunky. Um, he still like falls all over himself when he meets a new person and he wags his tail so hard that he smacks himself in the face with it. And Oh my God. I miss him. I know. I know. <laughs> and then my other dog is Zip. She is, we don't actually know what she is. Um, we're going to have her DNA tested sometime soon. She's a little uh, herding. I call her a herding breed melange. She's like border collie, cattle dog, Aussie, maybe mini Aussie, maybe Sheltie. She's little, about 35 pounds, and she's got pointy ears and pointy tail and a beautiful, fluffy, like, um, blue tick, and blue and red tick coat. So she has blue and gray and white on some parts, and then her little legs are white with, like, red freckles. And um, she's fantastic. I give her a lot of crap because she's very needy. Um, surprise, a, a needy herding dog. Um, and I, Yeah, right? <laughs> Who would have thought? Um, I joke that she would live inside our mouths if she could. Um, but overall she's also a phenomenal dog and has a great temperament and, um, you know, gets along with dogs, gets along with people, um, is also older. She's about to turn 12. So both of my dogs are kind of senior potatoes. We call them, uh, grandma and grandpa. So (laughs) my life, my dogs are, are extremely easygoing and we don't have plans for a third anytime soon. We lost our older German shepherd about two years ago. We don't have plans for a third because I think Nico and Zip would murder me in my sleep if I brought home a younger dog. Not that they wouldn't get along, but I think that would be a big routine change for them. So when I think about what my next dog is going to be, it's really hard because I think of my dogs as just so perfect. And like, we have this great relationship that we've built up over time and it's hard to think about starting over with that. So yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we're just enjoying retirement with these two. It's great. And they get along great with my son. They've both kind of told him off, but they're always really appropriate about it. So um Yeah. Yeah. I could not ask for better dogs. So those are my guys. So <laughs> for anyone who was wondering. And if you want to learn anything about Barley, you can see his Instagram and follow yeah. his experiences. And and now Niffler, um, the, the new puppy. Oh uh, who has kind of taken over Barley's Instagram and I'm sorry, but the puppy <gasps> content is uh, <laughs> just too cute. <laughs> too good to talk about. <laughs> so since you have a puppy, can we talk about our anonymous patrons uh, question? Yeah. That's what I was just about to pivot to. Awesome. So yeah, we have an anonymous patron um, who had a question about 
you know, when you're doing puppy raising, kind of the 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 idea of only good experiences, and they made the point that, you know, well, what about, you know, don't we want to be building some amount of resilience? You know, you would think that for the puppy learning to cope with tough things is also part of puppy raising. And you know what? Honestly, I think overall they're totally spot on. I mean, obviously, as you guys heard for the first 20 minutes of this podcast, my puppy was coping with a very tough thing. Mm-hmm. I.e., um, I believed he needed a nap and he strongly disagreed. Um, we went skiing for three hours today and Ooh. I carried him for a lot of it, but he still, you know, was out. Um, so, you know, he needed a nap. He ate, he went outside, he went potty, um, and he needed a nap and he was frustrated that I believed that and he did not. Um, so I think that, you know, the, the reality is we're never going to be able to raise a puppy completely positively. There's never going to be no frustration in our puppy raising. Right. And there's never going to be, well, generally, it's not like you're, it's possible to raise a puppy without your puppy ever experiencing something that freaks them out and then getting over that. Cause I also think that's a valuable thing. Mm-hmm. However, when I'm setting up a specific training plan or a socialization experience, I want that to be neutral to good. Mm. Um, I'm never going to intentionally set up my training to teach my dog to work through fear or frustration. It will be built in probably throughout their life, but I don't think that I've ever like intentionally been like, all right, so today for our training session, I'm going to teach my dog how to work near something that freaks him out. I'm, I might layer in other distractions first and then counter condition that separately and then ultimately teach my dog to work around something that freaks him out. Um, but that's not necessarily part of puppy raising. And again, I think for like that critical socialization period and exposing my puppy to other dogs or construction or men in hats, I never want that to be anything other than positive. Mm-hmm. And I never want to induce panic. You know, there are going to be times where it may be neutral um or even it might be upsetting you know i might screw it up um actually new year's eve we went to a bonfire with barley and niffler and there were some firecrackers and whatnot and niffler was totally great with the first couple Mm. um and then um there were a couple people who got a little too drunk and pulled out one that was way too big for both of my dogs they both recovered well it was an awesome learning experience i got to see my puppy recover from something that was really stressful would i have done that intentionally no And I think that's kind of the point is like, it's going to happen accidentally anyway. So to some degree, wrapping your puppy in bubble wrap when you can is probably good, but then not freaking out when like, you know, your bubble wrap isn't going to protect them from everything. Mm -hmm. No, I think you said it perfectly. What I was going to say is exactly that is only good experiences is a goal that we know (laughs) is not going to happen. Like that's what we're shooting for because we're going to overshoot to protect them from the scary experiences that we know they're inevitably going to have. And I would say that, you know, maybe we should think as as trainers about rephrasing it, because I I do wonder if we're making some pet parents a little paranoid about, you know, the things that happen to their puppies. So maybe, maybe there's a better way of putting that. That's definitely some food for thought, but I do think it can be, I, I think what you said about panic is important. I would never want a puppy to experience uh, a situation where they were panicked. Um, But I do think that a puppy who experiences some stress or some fear or some frustration and then is able to work through that and recover from it and ultimately go, okay, that didn't turn out so bad. I would count that as a good experience, at least in terms of, you know, checking a socialization checkbox that's a good experience. That's teaching the puppy that, yeah, some things are going to feel scary, but like, don't panic. It's going to be okay. That's what Mm -hmm. we want our dogs to learn. These new things that you're going to experience in the world, you don't need to treat them like threats. They might seem weird at first, but it's going to be okay in the end. And I do think that's a good experience for a dog. It doesn't necessarily have to be rainbows and sunshine from start to finish. It can be like, Ooh, my puppy's a little apprehensive and they're kind of checking this out a little, you know, and not so sure, but I'm going to help him understand that nothing to be worried about. Like this is going to be okay. And that's, that's a great experience. Those are really important. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I can jump in and like, so Niffler went to his first puppy kindergarten, I think five days after I got him home. Mm -hmm. 
And his, you know, when he first walked into that puppy, well, was carried into puppy kindergarten and saw the other puppies and there's the puppies, you know, the 16 week olds who have been coming for eight weeks. And, you know, the room, it's divided into three sections. So there's the, the toy breed and scared puppy corner. And then there's kind of the middling puppy corner. And then the, the other half is just, you know, for the rowdies. Yeah. Um, and Niffler was pretty worried when we first came in there. You know, he wanted to sit in my lap and his tail was kind of tucked and his eyes were pretty wide and he was pretty worried. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, it was a great learning experience for him to, you know, rec- realize that like, okay, I've got him, you know, I'll let him climb in my lap. I'll feed him food. I'll pet him. I'll pick him up if another puppy is approaching him and he's freaking out. And then he kind of worked through it. And, you know, he's been a puppy kindergarten twice more since then and is doing awesome. And I'm really glad he got that experience um, now versus, you know, when he's six months old, if I had never taken him to puppy kindergarten and then realized like, ooh, he doesn't quite know how to work through being nervous around other dogs. Yeah. Um, and is now a lot bigger and is now more likely to react with barky, lungy stuff and try to, instead mm-hmm. of doing you know, cute nine-week-old puppy stuff of crawling in my lap. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and, and, you know, one more thing. <laughs> As far as like frustration and whatnot goes, you know, as we're, you know, recording with my crying puppy who has woken up and is now crying again in the background, (laughs) I am constantly thinking about, you know, as best as I can guess, what is he feeling and is he okay right now? You know, I think right now what you guys are hearing is more of Niffler kind of fussing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm pretty okay with letting him cry this out right now. I'm going to take him out as soon as we're done recording. Mm-hmm. But this is not the sound of a puppy that is panicking. Um, this is the sound of a puppy who is unhappy about being confined. And whether he's frustrated or tired or whatever it is, he's not panicking. I don't need to go rescue him. Um, and I think it's good for him to work through this. Um, yeah. You know, versus the first night that I had him home, he did panic. Um, when I, when I went to, and I was just sitting on the couch, he, I was, I was 15 feet away from him, but he was, he was really freaking out about that. Yeah. And, you know, so I did go over and I did, you know, sit closer to him and soothe him until he fell asleep. And then I went back to the couch where I wanted to sit while I read. <laughs> right. And it can be hard to tell the difference too. And I mean, hard. You know, I say that also as the parent of a human child, like, you know, I'm not a proponent. I, I, I wasn't really. I never felt that the cry it out method of sleep training was right for us. Um, I understand why people do it. And I, I don't think it's, you know, unconscionable, but it wasn't right for us. But I, it, it can be hard to tell when a baby animal is panicked and really actually in distress versus just working through some frustration. And it's really nuanced. Um, yeah. What I was going to say was, I think instead of only good experiences, we should be saying, ultimately good experiences. Mm, so ooh, I like that, right? Ultimately good experiences. So they might not start out great, but let's help our puppies understand that they're going to end up. Okay. They're going to be okay in the outset. Um, I think that's a better way to phrase it. And that's definitely what I've been going for, but I don't think it's reflected in the, the phrase only good experiences. And I'm really glad our listener brought that up. So ultimately good experiences for puppies. I love that. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Probably make that into, I don't know, a t-shirt or something. Um, <laughs> probably not a t-shirt. I don't know. It'll be a meme. <laughs> Excellent. All right. So as my puppy um, sings us out, <laughs> it's like a little husky right now. Sing us the song of your people. <laughs> yeah. Lord. Uh, make sure you guys subscribe to Canine Conversations if you want to hear more of my puppy screaming in the background. Um, you can find episode notes and bonus materials at canineconvos.com. And it's canine all spelled out and convos as in short for conversation. Make sure you support the podcast on Patreon for as little as three bucks a month. You can submit questions to us at, for each episode. Um, you can always contact us at hello at canineconvos.com or on our Facebook page. Um, and we would absolutely love to hear from you guys. Yeah, absolutely. We'll be back for part two soon. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. I'm Ursa Acri, the co-owner of Canis Major Dog Training. Um, you can find us online at canismajortraining.com or on Instagram at, at canismajortraining. Um, we also just launched our Thinkific online courses. Uh, you can find a link to those on our website. So please come check us out. Awesome. And I'm Kayla Fratt. I run Journey Dog Training. You can find us on 
YouTube or journeydogtraining.com for all my blogs. Um, I also run the Pandemic Puppy Podcast, um, which is all about puppy raising. And you can follow Barley and Niffler and all of our mostly outdoor adventures at Collies Without Borders. And it is now Collies with an S. Um, because now there's multiple. They're so, multiplying. Uh, yeah, we got more than one. Um, yeah, God, hopefully not, uh, not anymore <laughs> for uh, a, a long time. I think I'm a two-dog yeah, person. Same. Max. Um, All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening. This has been a fun one. We'll see you guys in two weeks. All right. Bye. <laughs> bye.